Lord, I call upon you, hear me, hear me, O Lord. Lord, I call upon you, hear me, receive the voice of my prayer when I call upon my prayer arise in your sight as incense, and let the lifting up of my hands be an evening sacrifice. Hear me, O Lord. Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. And we're back for another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. Father Jeffrey, I have a story for you before we get into it. Sure. Uh, I have a listener uh, in Winnipeg named Alyssa, and she said she was listening to your show, and her son, Jesse, said that you're, you sounded like Batman. Well, great. <laughs> Do I get to drive the car? <laughs> uh, yes, because you sound like Batman, the Marvel, no, Marvel, he's DC, isn't he? They'll be sending you a, a Batmobile replica. So. Right. Well, I have to say, we did talk in our last episode about um, Psalm 141, and that is supposedly a psalm where David was in a cave. So mm. if anybody mm. should sound like Batman, it's David in Psalm 141. So there you go. <laughs> well, there you go. We can make connections all day here at, at, at Night Kingdom. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, we are currently on the historical development of the lamplighting psalm. So in the last episode, we looked at the poetic themes, the structure, the meaning of the lamplighting psalms, with, uh, which just for a reminder is Psalm 140, 141, 129, and 116, all in a row. And we talked a little bit about how even though those all four of those psalms aren't in order from the book of Psalms, uh, they actually contain a bit of a, a narrative shape within themselves, those four psalms together. Today, we're going to be investigating why is it that these four psalms were put together, even though they're not in order uh, from the book of Psalms? Why were they taken out and put in that order? When do we first see that? Uh, when do we first see them used in Vespers? Why are they associated with evening prayer? All of these questions we're going to ask today. So, Father Jeffrey, um, maybe uh, we could take it away with, um, we got, why, why are these particular psalms used for evening worship? 
Uh, well, that we've got both obvious and less obvious answers, um, you know, for that. In, in the first instance, one of the interesting things um, that you know liturgical scholars have uh, pointed out uh, in the 20th century, where a lot of liturgical, you know, historical scholarship has done has been done. Um, there had been a kind of naive assumption before that well, early Christians just carried on doing what Jews were doing. Um, and interestingly, it is the ubiquity, the universal usage of Psalm 140 in the early Christian church and the absolute absence of Psalm 140 being used, as far as anybody can tell, in any part of Jewish worship as being an evening psalm uh, that led to scholars realizing there was more of a break there uh, than had previously been thought. In other words, early Christians were more creative and were doing things differently and not just kind of carrying on and kind of Christianizing, you know, earlier practice. So it's very the very fact that Psalm 140 appears so early on and so universally in the Christian church. And we're talking about, you know, not just in the Byzantine rite, you know, which of course emerges later, but in, in the places where the Byzantine rite will become really important, like, you know, Constantinople or, you know, Jerusalem and, and so forth. But we're talking even amongst the so-called Oriental Orthodox, so Syriac tradition and Egyptian tradition, Armenian tradition. And even the Western tradition, Psalm 140, during the early period of the church, was universally used as an evening psalm. But you know, not because the Jews had been doing that. So it happens. It must have happened very early on. So it happens so early on that we, it's hard to kind of see the history of it, right? So it's it's present already there. Um, in fact. Um, I can you know read to you a couple of quotes from very early you know church uh, fathers or voices you know from this um, mm -hmm. you know origin you know who dies in the middle of the third century around year two fifty four um, he uh, refers to um, Psalm one forty and the evening prayer in his treatise on prayer and he says that um, you know the the reason for that psalm being included is, of course, the words, the lifting up my, of my hands like an evening sacrifice. So the fact that the word evening occurs, you know, within it is specifically, um, you know, why that, that prayer, you know, gets used. But, uh, you know, the this is also testified, you know, too, by uh, Eusebius um, in his uh, history of the early church, because he says uh, this, that um, it is surely no small sign of God's power that throughout the whole world in the churches of God, at the morning rising of the sun, at the evening hours, hymns, praises, and truly divine delights are offered to God. So he's talking about, you know, the spread of liturgy of the hours and prayer at these set times, you know, of day. And it, he says it's happening everywhere. And God's delights are indeed the hymns sent up everywhere on earth in his church at the times of morning and evening. So for this reason, it is said somewhere, let my praise be sung sweetly to him and let my prayer be like incense before you. So referring to Psalm 140. So as a reference there to the universal nature of it already in the third century and specifically to that Psalm. So I think the obvious answer is that uh, Psalm 140, you know, refers to evening, 
right? So, and, and, um, you know, we've seen that, you know, the, the choice of Psalm 129 could have something to do with the, the, the waiting for morning. So the idea that it's dark and, and we're attending upon the Lord and also that reference to, you know, where the real light, you know, might be coming from what we're really looking for is not the sunlight, but, but, but the Lord coming. So we'll, we'll talk, you know, about the kind of ritual around, um, the lighting of the evening lamp and how central that was in another podcast. But the, for now, I mean, essentially the, the themes of, of, of evening, of, of the darkness coming in and of waiting for the light are obvious reasons for these psalms being chosen. But I wouldn't discount the kind of, you know, thinking that went into our talking about the the psalms, you know, the way they kind of fit together in this move from, uh, you know, assembling as just individuals into a kind of collective worshiping unit, the the, the faithful community, to kind of this more global um you know, view of God's salvation and forgiveness and steadfast love, you know, for all the nations and everything, because they do kind of fit together, you know, rather neatly and evoke themes that, you know, are already kind of embedded in into the, the evening uh, Vesper service. And, um, you know, they, it kind of puts paid to the the notion that you sometimes get this was that latterly you know relatively recently developed uh, phenomenon of thinking about vespers as well it starts with creation so that's just the beginning of the world it's it's a kind of symbolic way of representing that a dramatic way of representing that and then we see the fall and so these psalms are about the fall somehow and then we're going to see you know redemption well first of all as we talked about the psalms they're not about the fall. They're about faithful people who are struggling. Um, so they're already in the community and, and are just trying to cope with the, the difficulties of life. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they tie more directly into, you know, themes of continuation in the faithful covenant community. They, they tie into what we're waiting for, what we're looking for. And if Vespers is this, this service of coming together and gathering around the evening light and waiting for God, well, then, you know, it makes perfect sense that these Psalms, you know, could be chosen. But, uh, you know, of course, the entire Psalter is, is marvelous. So, I mean, they were carefully chosen, but, you know, you, you could have had, you know, other, other Psalms um, in their place, you know, just as easily. But I say from a very early period, these, you know, certainly 140, and then very quickly, you know, by the time of the fourth and fifth century, we have a uh, discussion of, of uh, you know, evening services in Cappadocia and so forth. And we have already the linking of 140, 141, 129, and 116 as a unit. And, and the fact that it exists in places like Armenia as well, uh, which was by that point, you know, kind of outside um, the empire, uh, means that it was spread fairly early on indeed. My question is about the relationship of Jewish worship and early Christian worship. So I we did talk a little bit about this in our actual series introduction episode. So if you want to hear a little bit about this, you can go back all the way to episode one. But I think it's worth bringing back up here because us Orthodox use Psalms very often. Uh, and I think that I, at least I grew up with the understanding, which I now know to be somewhat false, that Orthodox worship is just Jewish worship um, given a fresh coat of paint and updated a little bit. Um, so I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit about the relationship between Jewish worship, especially the Psalms, 
and then how Christian worship developed out of that? Yeah, well, certainly. Uh, I mean, the the Psalter itself is assembled, you know, in you know Israel in, uh, as a post-exile phenomenon. So we're talking after the Babylonian um, captivity, uh, as with most of the Old Testament scriptures. But it's put together as a book of worship uh, for common worship, for for the extension of that common worship into um, the worship uh, in the in the Jewish home. So, in so far as the Psalms are concerned, we use them in much you know the same way for both corporate worship and uh, individual prayer that is connected with that. You know, it's really important actually to emphasize um, in the Orthodox Christian practice that, you know, we, we really don't try to separate ourselves when we, when we're at home with our families or indeed on our own praying, we're not trying to be doing a different thing. You know, uh, we're trying to just be extending the worship of the community out into the world. It's a kind of mission opportunity to to extend what happens when we gather together you know beyond the bounds of of the community you know gathered in in one place um you know the, in fact the whole development in the recent centuries of prayer books you know the kind of orthodox daily prayers of evening and morning prayers that aren't actually the liturgy of the hours um you know it's a somewhat unfortunate development it was done by imitation of western models and it actually took us away from what Orthodox Christians had always done, which is to pray the prayers of the church at home and specifically to pray the Psalms at home. So that's the best thing that we can be doing. And that, of course, is completely consistent with, with Jewish practice. Um, now, we have to remember, you know, early Christianity emerges at a time when there is still a functioning temple. Um, it's not, it's not ever the same temple as the first great temple. Um, God's glory was never said to have descended on. It was almost constantly being renovated. It was never complete. Um, and of course, you know, in Jewish thinking, that temple is replaced by Christ. And so, uh, some of, you know, it's true that, I mean, there's, kind of a carrying forward of the themes and practices of Jewish worship into Christianity. But if you take something like Psalm, you know, 140, the, the evening reference is to the evening sacrifice. Well, that's the sacrifice happening in the temple. So I guess what, you know, liturgical scholars had maybe thought, well, Jews probably had some kind of non-temple worship in which Psalm 140 played an important role in the evening Time frame, right? And so Christians just continue doing that. Well, no, actually, the innovation here is to say that what is happening in the temple up until the destruction of the temple in AD 70 um, is now what is happening in our liturgical worship, because of course we are in the temple when we're in Christ, you know, and so that's the songs of ascent up to the temple are, are, are coming into the presence of Christ, our acknowledgement of Christ in our midst. Um, and so that, so the innovation occurs on the Christian front in terms of using 140, not now to refer to a temple, like a physical temple context of sacrifices being offered as they were in the morning and the evening, but now it's, like an evening sacrifice in that we are offering 
ourselves, which is what, of course, St. Paul encourages us to do, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to and in the temple that is Jesus Christ, right? To join ourselves to his sacrifice. And so it's that kind of thing, you know, that we're looking at. So the reason every every Christian is using 140, Psalm 140 in the evening isn't because Jews use that in their evening prayers. It's because it's, it's now the replacement of the temple worship and the evening sacrifice with the sacrifice that is our own hearts and minds and bodies and lives in the context of our liturgical corporate worship, if that makes sense. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. I have a question about, you mentioned that it was quite ubiquitous. Uh, so that Psalm 140 was used, you know, in the Armenian tradition and in, in Egypt and even in the Western church. Could you speak a little bit more about the connection of Psalm 140 with the other three lamplighting psalms? So 141, 129, and 116. So that's one question. Uh, Let's maybe start there. Could you talk a little bit about how those four got connected? Yeah, well, so as I say, by the fourth or fifth century, you know, we have evidence of this Um, in Cappadocia, in Armenia. if my understanding, you know, I, I'm not a scholar on Oriental Orthodox tradition, but my understanding is that there's evidence from the early Coptic tradition that they, these were linked together there as well, but that ceased to be the case after some time. I, I could be getting that wrong, but um, we could look into that and report back in a future podcast. Uh, but, you know, there, as understood, and maybe not so much as a unit, a unit, I think, implies, you know, kind of just putting them together and treating them, uh, you know, as one thing. I think that there was probably more of an appreciation initially that, you know, we are moving, you know, through these Psalms, but they're, they're put together. It, a, a model for that might be the way we read the six Psalms, you know, at Matins, you know, we, we, we acknowledge them there as six Psalms. We, we almost pause for a second or two between each one to acknowledge that these are, you know, six psalms that are being read. Yes, as, you know, one collection and, you know, for very particular reasons there, it's, it is about waiting for the Lord. It's, you know, meant to recall the, 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 the waiting upon Lord coming in the fullness of his glory in the eschaton. And, and so forth. those psalms are very specifically, you know, chosen for that, but we we know and, and, and sort of experience them as six different psalms. My sense would be that the very first use of these four psalms together in Vespers would have been more along those lines. And so more in keeping with the way we kind of, you know, almost exegeted them and, and kind of connected them to the, the way the service is unfolding with, with their 
deeply embedded themes, right? Rather than just sort of leveling them and just seeing them, well, these are some interesting words we can use in between, you know, hymns. Because the hymns, of course, come later. The the interspersing of hymns and so forth, uh, you know, that's more a fifth, sixth, seventh century phenomenon as the you know festal and you know other hymnography starts to be composed. So they exist as psalms that are prayed in sequence from at least as early as the fourth century, but probably experienced as psalms there. And because of the kinds of things that, you know, they evoked, but also because of that, you know, that movement from, you know, what company will I keep? This company. I'm, you know, remember this is corporate worship. I am already in the company of the faithful. So their you know, job done. Secondly, you know, we're looking at, you know, the, the, the deliverance that has been experienced to be able to come from the I, the isolation into the we, this community. Thirdly, you know, we, what are we doing together? We've ascended together up to the temple, uh, which is Christ, and we are waiting for the Lord together. And, and what is the final kind of culminating climax of all that? Well, that the all the world will be blessed when the Lord comes. And so, I mean, as a sequence, you know, they make a lot of sense together precisely as we're gathering together and focusing on the coming of the light and the lighting of the, the evening lamp. And remember, I mean, that drawing together around the hearth was a universal human experience, right? You weren't going to have 25 rooms in your home with electric lighting and electric heat or, you know, some sort of uh, artificial heat. You gathered together in company with one another around one light. And that's even referred to in the Gospels, right? Nobody lights a lamp, uh, that evening lamp, and puts it under a bushel. Um, so it's about lighting the light so that the that the community can experience and the world can experience it. And so these Psalms make a lot of sense, you know, together. So as early as the fourth century, we, we find them as a unit. Nobody sit, sat down and, and wrote us an explanation for the first time it was done and why. So we can only infer based on, you know, the how far and widely it was um, distributed and the kinds of commentaries like we just heard from the likes of um, Origen and Eusebius and, 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 and others others um, about the fact that they're they're being used there. If you go to Vespers today, even if it's a daily Vespers on, let's say, a Tuesday, a random Tuesday night, um, not uh, like not only does this happen at a great Vespers on a Saturday night or a festival Vespers, but even like a regular little Vespers on a weeknight, you will basically not hear these four Psalms read straight through without interruption. There will actually be, you were mentioning, hymns interspersed within verses uh, about the theme of that day of the year. Um, and you mentioned, when did it come into play that that started happening, Father Jeffrey? Well, we don't have that kind of composed hymnography before, you know, kind of, uh, let's say, 6th and 7th century. You know, there was a real reluctance. In the 4th and 5th centuries are centuries of uh particular controversy. I mean, there's never been a time in church history that hasn't been. But if you think about the real pointed debates that took place in the fourth and fifth centuries, these are the first ecumenical councils that would have taken place, you know, 325 in Nicaea, 381 in Constantinople, then into the fourth century, you know, at Ephesus and Chalcedon, all the, the, the kind of core debates around, you know, Christ, around the Trinity, and so forth. And the problem at that time was that 
hymns were being used by those who were kind of supporting one side or another, and often the kind of heretical side. I mean, the that uh, famous presbyter Arius um, from the fourth century was well known as a composer of kind of what you might call kind of praise songs, choruses um, that were really catchy. And that's part of the reason Arianism spread so far and wide during the fourth century was hymnography, you know, and so the church, um, kind of pull back a little bit and you know had if there had been a kind of tradition of of composing new hymns and prayers and everything it pulled back from that and said we're going to be really conservative and traditional and we're going to stick to the psalms and so uh you know th- there was a real emphasis on uh just sticking to scriptural texts and things that were tried and trusted rather than composing you know new hymns for for quite a long time um it's funny there's a group of um presbyterians in scotland who kind of follow the same you know practice no hymnography only using the psalter or whatever um i was you know, find that curious because they're, they're basically following, you know, kind of fourth, early fifth century practice. Well, once those main controversies kind of get settled, the church becomes a little bit more comfortable with expanding its liturgical repertoire, as it were. You get new feasts being established really in the kind of late fifth, early sixth century. You start to find the church year being expanded. With that, of course, comes the composition of hymns, you know, and some of the great hymnographers that we think of, like St. Romanus the Melodist, you know, come from this period. A little bit after that, you know, St. John of Damascus and and others. And, and the, the the if you look into things like the the Menaean and the Festal Menaean and, and the Pentecostarian and the Lenten Triodian, and if you look at the names of the people that the hymnography is associated with, and then go and look up the their, the dates that they are. They really start, you know, in the five hundreds and the six hundreds, um, and. And and so at that point, what are you going to do with all that new hymnography? And so some of it just simply, you know, so the, the, the the psalms get suppressed certainly in the cathedral or city right right where there was already an anxiousness not to kind of overly prolong you know just using one psalm after another already they were just singing shorter excerpts and refrains as we've said uh, but now there's this opportunity to introduce all these new hymns and so what do you do in, in in some ways you just drop a psalm and you might just sing something like lord i call and then jump down to a later point in the Psalms, paying no longer any reference to the fact that it was a Psalm with a beginning and an end and a meaning unto itself. But now you're just picking up at a certain point with something like bring my soul out of prison, right? And you think, what's this about? Well, it's just a nice thing to say in between the really important thing are the hymns now, right? The hymns of the day of the the saint about the feast or, or whatever. So the Psalm kind of becomes like just decorative uh, framing for the hymnography. And so that, I mean, we've talked about this, how this will continue to the point where, you know, in a lot of churches and a lot of places, every opportunity to do a psalm is either completely suppressed or just truncated to the very smallest little bit. Think of the Prochemenon and Alleluia verses that we have at liturgy. You know, you're, you just have completely out of context one or two verses of a psalm. And it's just because they say interesting things, but the real meat of the thing is what we're about to, to go on and do, you know, whether it's read an epistle or, or, or sing a hymn of the day or, or whatever. And, and that's unfortunate because as we've seen, the Psalms are so 
you know, they're so true to life. They're so engaging and they're, they speak so meaningfully to us. So if we could somehow do both, I'm, I'm not opposed to hymnography. I'm not like those folks in the weird, um, you know, far reaches of Scotland who say, no, no, never sing anything other than something that's in, in scripture. But the church kind of had a point when it, it said, these are important. And so, although we associate that now more strictly with, you know, kind of the monastic or desert practice, and it was really more the entire hymn book of the church at, at one point. And it would be worth looking at how we could bring some of that back, or at least recover the sense that they are psalms, and then they aren't just interesting words that we can use to kind of separate the, the really key things that we have about the day. And the, the weird thing actually is, and a lot of day, I mean, sure, the feasts have a lot of good content on them, right? You know, get something Christmas or Theophany or certainly Pascha, we don't want to lose that hymnography. But on a daily basis, the real, um, I'll choose my words carefully here, but the, the kind of real repetitive and almost contentless um, material is often in the hymnography. Some of it's quite redundant and derivative. You know, every saint starts to sound the same, you know, because they're just using generic texts and phrases and everything. Whereas the really interesting content and the really true to life, you know, spiritual struggle and, and, and to belong to the covenant community where God's steadfast love is being shown as these Psalms are talking about is in the Psalms, you know. So I, I think we could kind of recalibrate that a little bit without losing anything and without destroying the, the, the liturgy as it's emerged or evolved. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.